Welcome to the New Mexico in Focus podcast edition for Friday, July 17th, 2020. As always, I am Kevin McDonald, the executive producer here for New Mexico in Focus at New Mexico PBS. Hope everyone in your world is staying safe, staying healthy, and we're going to be talking a lot again this week about COVID-19 and those health issues. Got a great line panel for you this week. Includes Tom Garrity, the Garrity Group PR, and Laura Sanchez, an attorney. Both of those are line regulars. Also, always thrilled to have our guest panelists on this week. That's Inez Russell Gomez. She's the head of the editorial page at the Santa Fe New Mexican. Always great to hear from Inez. Always great to hear from the Santa Fe area. All right, let's kick things off again. Another big week in terms of COVID-19 response in New Mexico. First thing Monday, the new, old, however you want to describe it, restrictions around restaurant dining in service went into effect. Basically not allowed again anymore because of the spread rate in New Mexico uh, surging upward over the last few weeks. Restaurants can still have outdoor dining at certain capacity. They can also have uh, curbside pickup and delivery, but the in dining uh, just not going to fly right now at least for Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. I want to point out here before we get to the line to talk about that as well as back to school that uh, on Facebook Live this week, Gene Grant caught up with uh, several restaurant owners and the head of the Restaurant Association for the state to talk about the challenges they faced. They were already struggling. When the shutdown was first in place, there was federal assistance. That's not there anymore as these new restrictions come back into play they're really facing a hard time. They had a, a sort of peaceful protest online, standing in front of their restaurants to protest the governor's um, new restrictions, basically saying that it's not their fault and that they are not the problem and that they have changed their operating procedures to be COVID-19 safe. But this is one of the things that the governor feels like she can mitigate to help with the spread. And so here we are. It's a difficult situation all the way around, but we encourage you to go watch and listen to what those restaurant owners had to say about what life is like for them right now. Again, not an easy situation whatsoever. Okay, now let's turn it over to Gene Grant and the line as they talk about uh, that same topic as well as, again, Albuquerque Public Schools came out this week. A lot of schools are starting to lay out their re-entry plans, as they're calling it, for school in the fall. It's got everybody concerned. Of course, everybody wants kids back in classroom. Hybrid models, online models are just not the same. We know that there's learning loss there. The Legislative Education Study Committee heard testimony this week about the learning loss uh, last semester, uh, but um, schools are having to figure out how they're going to do things this year, especially as cases continue to surge in Albuquerque. Uh, for Albuquerque Public Schools, we now know that in-person won't be at least until September 8th. Uh, with a virtual model before then, as we see how COVID-19 cases go in New Mexico. But lots to dive into here. Let's turn it over to Gene Grant and The Line. This Monday, it was a tough one for restaurants across the state. I spoke to a few owners on Facebook Tuesday who wondered if they'd be able to even survive this new shutdown. This is a tough one course, because reopening didn't work. There weren't enough masks, there wasn't enough social distancing, 
but there's plenty to talk about with our line panel. Here on the screen with me is line regular and attorney Laura Sanchez. Laura, thank you for being with us today. A lot, another regular with me this week, Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR. Tom, good to see you. And over the phone, and a nice, beautiful photo of her, it's always good to have our friend to the north, Inez Russell Gomez, editorial page editor for the Santa Fe New Mexican. Inez, thanks for being with us, too. All right, Tom, let me start with you. Restaurants say there's no proof that they're the key to slowing the spread of COVID-19. Is there any way to slow the disease without shutting down or further limiting restaurants? Let's start with the restaurant folks. Well, uh, from the restaurant perspective, it seems as if uh, you know that's the only sector that right now anyway is really visibly challenging the public health orders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that there's it's pretty interesting when you look at their complaints compared uh, to what the role of the Economic Recovery Council is supposed to be. And I think that there's some optic issues that really need to be looked at by the administration, specifically uh, the membership of the Economic Recovery Council. Uh, You know, restaurants are not that prominent there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, the owner of a soccer team uh, who is a member of it. And all of a sudden, you know, they're being allowed to play, albeit out of state. Um, Granted, everybody says that they're following the rules. But there's that optics issue that if you are closer through the Economic Recovery Council, perhaps your projects are you know, not quite scrutinized as much. I, I'd like to see a little bit more of a common ground be established between the Restaurant Association and the governor. I'm not sure, though, that uh, you know, the, uh, the Restaurant Association just ha- seems to have a burn the bridges kind of mentality. We haven't really seen I haven't really seen that much of uh, an olive branch to say, hey, here's some solutions that could work. Right. Inez in Santa Fe, again, thank you for joining us over the phone. The new order gets around the gym and church question by requiring masks in those places. And I, how do you feel about that? That's, that's an interesting one, especially if you're singing hymns, if you're breathing heavily from working out, and we know now how far this travels in the air. What, what's your thought on that? It is definitely an interesting question. I know from having attended mass a couple of times since they opened up again, um, they don't just require masks. They actually, at our church, they line up where you can sit. So there's enforced social distancing. Um, they told the congregation, don't sing. The only person that does is a lector who's like 12 or 15 feet back. Right. Um, so they're very clear about what you can and can't do. And until recently, they were doing communion on the way out the door. So you weren't even going up like normal. And there's X's on the church floor, how to stand apart. Um, as for gyms, it does seem to me that you'd be breathing and exercising. But we know now more fully that masks work. Mm-hmm. Because if you remember the hairdressers in Missouri that had COVID and took care of all those people and exposed 149 people, yep. they were masked. None of those people caught COVID. The Is hairdressers, yeah, yeah, they just came out with that study. It's been published. The CDC published it in some scientific journal. That's why Robert Redfield, the doctor who's in charge of CDC, said, look, this really does work. 149 people exposed by their hairdressers, two hairdressers, no one got COVID, and their families were exposed and did get sick. Isn't that something? Yes. You know, when you think about how close a hairdresser is in proximity to somebody, it's miraculous. I mean, 140 plus people, it's an amazing thing. Uh, Laura, I've got a, a, a question I do want Inez to get back on this one too, but so far the state hasn't made an issue of visitors from out of state too terribly much. 
But uh, for some of the folks in Santa Fe I've heard from, and Taos certainly too, the license plates in towns are from Texas, Arizona, California, all states with, you know, big spiking going on. The tourism sector, uh, the sustainability in this environment, how, 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 can we make, how can we manage this? It's huge for our state. I think Laura may have dropped out. Inez, I would love you to pick up on that. What do, I, are, you, are you seeing lots of plates up there from out of state? Well, I saw a lot of plates at the parking lot, and then I realized I was actually at the Hertz lot, which parks in a shopping oh. center. So I had to, to rethink it. But we still are seeing a lot of plates. The thing of it is, is you can't think about a shutdown or a quarantine as hurting businesses, even though that's the effect. What's hurting businesses is the fact that there's a pandemic. Right. And if you look at history, when the, the flu epidemic in 1918, the cities that opened up quicker, more quickly, they actually suffered more economically than the cities that did not. So as hard as it is, if we shut down and take care and everyone quarantines and does what we know works scientifically, we're gonna be out of this in six to eight weeks and then we can all get back to normal. The restaurants, had we not opened up a little too soon or maybe flaunted the, the rules because people in Santa Fe would go to eat and they'd take off the mask and they wouldn't put them back on, uh, you right. see. So if we hadn't have done those things, perhaps the restaurants wouldn't be suffering now. So that's really the key is do what works, mm -hmm. do it for a, a long period, get aid to help people to get through, and then we'll be fine. Right. Hey, Laura, I got a question. Is, are we just too political in our times right now to make any really sustainable progress here? I, you know, the underneath question is that how scary does it, this have to be to get people to adopt masks, make good policy, and get serious about our behavior? Well, unfortunately, it has become very politicized, which I think frustrates a lot of people. You can hear the frustration from the governor as well and the governor's office. But I think a lot of people um, that at least that I've spoken to and that I hear from often um, are frustrated that it has become a political issue. You know, this is a health crisis. And um, I do think that there's a, a huge business impact. And that's something that we all should be concerned about. Um, but it doesn't have to be a partisan issue or a political issue. Um, it's really more about, you know, just understanding how to survive in this new paradigm. I mean, we really have a very different structure. I'm not sure we're ever going to go back to whatever normal is. Um, we're just going to have to adapt. And I think that we're able to do that. But it will take a lot of, um, I think, social pressure also. I've Because I have um, family and friends in other parts of the state, folks that I need to visit on a regular basis, um, my significant other is from Roswell. So um, going down there, you can see the difference. I think culturally, there are folks who don't wear the mask as often. Um, and I noticed that uh, in, in going just to the grocery store or whatever, there were just not as many people wearing masks as you see in Albuquerque, for example. And that's really a cultural, a social pressure issue. And we have to all um, come together and, and you know sing from the same um, hymn book, if you will, because this is something that's just not going to go away and we need to all i think um bind together and uh and, and hang tight to try to see ourselves out the other side Laura, i'll stay with you on this uh, we got to slip in uh the school opening plans we had our uh, meeting last night as we taped this uh middle of the week we had a meeting our school board decided september 8th is the date what, what's your initial reaction to how you saw the hybrid model rolled out well, you know, I found it interesting. They were they were in the board meeting for very long, uh, very late into the night, and obviously very thorough discussions about the whole thing. I am actually on a, a charter school board right now, 
And we had a similar discussion early in the week about how we would be rolling out um, our re-entry, which I find kind of funny being a, a sci-fi um, fan, a re-entry plan is what it's being termed. But um, I mean, I think that everybody has to um, really think uh, carefully about the logistics of these plans um, and what the impact will be on student learning first and foremost, because I think that, you know, we, we already have seen a huge impact on students. Uh, even though we're trying to do distance learning, it just isn't the same as the kind of classroom instruction they were getting before. There's a lot of, there's also a lot of gaps, I think, that disproportionately affect um, poor people, poor children, children of color, the folks who don't have access to the same technology. And it's creating a gap, I think, in terms of learning. So um, what I found is that, um, you know, September 8th, uh, seems like it's far away, but when it comes to um, teachers reporting back for in-service, it really is not that far away. Um, you know, in our school board meeting, we talked about um, teachers reporting back on July 28th. Now, this was before um, we learned of, of what the APS was going to do, but um, it will also vary depending on the school district, depending on whether charter schools are chartered through um, the PED or through the uh, Albuquerque school district. So um, we're going to see, I think, a lot of changes still yet to come. And even though they've they've discussed September 8th as a target date, I still think that they're going to have to revise based on where we're headed and if we've been able to flatten the curve or not. That's a good point, too. We appreciate that. Lots of frustration boiling over. We know it. Everybody feels it. Uh, the economy in New Mexico is still struggling. The damage done by COVID-19 will be long-lasting years and years to recover. The governor has made her public health orders, and all along the way, there have been plenty of detractors and plenty of critics. No more, I would dare say, than the state Republican Party and Chairman Steve Pierce. The uh, GOP party in New Mexico often has press releases out within minutes of the governor issuing a public health order or while she's still in a presser giving that public health order. And the one consistent thing about that is that they don't like what she's doing, they don't like her approach, and they feel like we need to do more to help business owners in the state and help the state uh, open up and help its economy. Uh, and we wanted to talk to uh, Chairman Steve Pierce this week and find out a little bit about what science informs their approach, what approach they would like to see that maybe the governor hasn't done already. And so senior producer Matt Grubb sat down with Steve Pierce via Zoom this week to get his take on all things COVID-19 and the state's response. New Mexico Republicans are often out with a response to the governor's latest press conference within an hour. It's an amazing thing. Sometimes before it's even finished, they've accused the governor of being too restrictive as she tries to slow the growth of COVID-19. What would they like to see and what science are they looking to? And MIF senior producer Matt Grubbs asked those questions and more to party chairman Steve Pierce. Chairman Pierce, thanks for taking a few minutes to join us and, and to really talk about the COVID-19 response. I wanted to start with what you feel like needs to be done differently right now. Well, uh, we've got to figure our way to stay healthy, but we must be able to save the jobs uh, I think that too many people believe that jobs can just be created and, and they're not. Uh, our investors, they lose confidence. They lose belief that, that certain environments will, will be positive for them. Right now, they're, they're deciding that New Mexico is going to be a, a not a positive environment. 
Uh, many people are are just closing forever. And so as you as this as this pandemic works its way through on the health aspect, it's also having effects in the economic conditions. And as let's say that 201 restaurants have closed already, uh, then people are driving less. And so the state budget is already $2.4 billion short out of a $7 billion budget. So, so somewhere in the 30, 35% range. Uh, so imagine if you're trying to, to make up 35% shortfall in your personal income. Uh, so the state has that. But then when you shut down the restaurants, that closes the gap even more or it, it, it broadens the gap more. And then when you shut down tourism, you have three major hits to the New Mexico economy. And, and we should be figuring out how to open up, not how to get more restrictive. And that's what should be done differently right now. Uh, it sounds like the governor's approach, at least in opening restaurants um, in, in June, was to try to reopen. Um, you've obviously seen what's happened in Texas and Arizona um, and to some extent with the resurgence in um, Colorado and certainly Utah, we're sort of, or we were at least, surrounded by these states. How do we open up tourism um, and at the same time keep the folks here safe? Yeah, the, so I don't think the, the number of cases is the best measure. It's the mortality. In other words, uh, we're going to have to get some herd immunity at some point, and there are suggestions that, that maybe parts of the nation are already approaching that. But we're measuring so many more people. Uh, before this last week, uh, two weeks maybe, there was nobody in line to check in Hobbs. Now the line is about a mile long to check. Well, obviously, you're going to get more positives. But if you're not getting more mortality, then you've already had those cases anyway. So it's, I don't think it's that we're necessarily spiking up. It's that we're identifying more. But the mortality is remaining very stable. Uh, the Center for Disease Control, New York Times. Uh, there are different websites that we refer to. And, and so that would be the better gauge, the mortality rate. Well, um, we're looking, I mean, it's, it's, it looks like the state right now is at about a 5.3, 5 5.4, um, somewhere up there. Um, that's a fairly serious mortality rate. And what we're hearing from public health officials here and across the country, regardless of political affiliation, is that, um, yeah, they're testing more people, but they're also getting a higher percentage of people testing positive, which indicates that, that we're, not, um, we're not controlling the spread of COVID as effectively as we were. Um, where do you see science that supports opening up further? Yeah, the so last night a report came out that one of the one of the testing labs that was part of showing that there are greater incidences of the COVID nineteen, uh, they had put out that it was ninety four percent positive that were testing. And keep in mind that some labs are one hundred percent positive testing, and so at some point the science should go and look at the results that we're coming up with. That ninety four percent that the one lab that came out later and said, "Oops." It was 9.4%. And so, so I don't think we should be making these, these decisions without digging just a little bit deeper into the positives that we're finding. And again, the, the mortality rate is staying uh, pretty similar. But if you look at a state like South Dakota, they never closed anything. All she did is said, look, here's what the risks are. Here are the people at risk. You should be very careful. Here are the people not at risk. You don't have to worry as much. And you businesses, 
if you're going to get people sick, then they're not going to come in your store. So, so you need to take care of your customers and they've never shut down and their mortality rate is less than ours. And so this idea that, that, that we have to shut everything down in order to succeed is, is one that I just don't, I don't think that it bears up under scrutiny. I don't think Sweden ever shut down. I don't think North uh, South Korea ever shut down. Their economies have been good. They control when people get sick. They are very good at isolating them, keeping the spread from going. And that's, I think, the direction that we should be headed. Uh, Sweden's mortality rate is outpacing the rest of, uh, of the countries in Northern Europe. And in fact, they've come out and admitted that herd immunity wasn't achievable and that it was a mistake. And as you know, South Korea was much more aggressive about testing. Um, you know, it strikes me um, as we've gone through this process, we have heard folks who are in favor of opening up say things like, well, look at Florida. They opened up and nothing happened. Look at Georgia. Um, and then we wait a couple of weeks and we see the results um, where Florida is now the epicenter for the globe. Um, there are more cases there than there were in New York. Um, we've seen similar things with, for example, California, but it, it strikes me that at some point you're just going to run out of, of states to point to. South Dakota is in fact trending up right now. Um, again, I, I don't see that there's science saying that you know states like Arizona that have opened up um, have been able to do so effectively to the extent that they wanted to initially. Yeah, you, but you also have to count the other costs in uh, right now one of the medical examiners, the interim uh, chief medical examiner in New Mexico says she's looking at 28, 2300 or 2800 cases of, of death that are related to COVID but, and suicides, car crashes that can't be explained uh, where it looks like maybe someone just was frustrated. And so, so you have these costs that are in addition to COVID from the full shutdown. And I think that uh, to simply say that that we have to shut everything down until we have no cases is one that has a very risky future to it. The Republican Party has been pretty, um, pretty outspoken that, that they're feeling like the governor is, is doing this wrong. Um, one of the, after her recent um, public health uh, order, ordering restaurants to close uh, indoor dining once again, um, you had said that this idea that um, there's a 25% limit for someone, a 50% limit for someone, um, doesn't make any sense. Um, but then you also decried a one-size-fits-all solution um, in the next sentence. So, so help me uh, understand where you think um, we should be headed in terms of restrictions right now and mask mandates. Well, the, the main thing should be equality under the law. Fairness under the law should be the basis, no matter what party is in power, that should be it when we have allowed the big box stores to stay open and early in the shutdowns, everything was shut down and the big box stores were open without exception. Uh, then, and so that unequal treatment of the law is something that we have been very critical of. Also, you note that we were pretty critical when the governor uh, said, okay, Walmart and Las Cruces, you've got to shut down because you had four of your employees test positive and they stayed open. And then suddenly they were given that clean bill of health. They had wiped the store down. How in the world do you, do you wipe down a Walmart store? Do you get rid of all the inventory? Do you bring in new boxes of stuff? It's not possible to do on a five hour period. It's not possible to do probably in a week long period. And so that's the unfair treatment under the law that I'm saying 
if it's if it's right for some to shut down, then then why is it okay for big box stores to be open? I never understood that. You're, you get far more congestion in a big box store than you do a small business. Small businesses, they'll be lucky to have 10 people at a time in the store. They'd be ecstatic about it, but they could at least keep them separated. That's been the, the main uh, complaint we have. We've also been very critical of the governor because she is taking the the penalty under one law and applying that $5,000 penalty that comes under one law over to the law where she's able to give her, her executive orders. And we're very critical. That's the case we're taking to the Supreme Court. I know that we're right on the law. I'm not sure that the Supreme Court will agree with us. Where are you on, on mask use? Um, do you feel that it's effective at stopping the transmission of the virus? And if so, should should everyone be wearing one? Well, uh, what I feel like is that that we're getting mixed signals. Uh, uh, Fauci has, Dr. Fauci has said that it does no good, and then he came back and says that it does good. And my point well, of just observation, just no, wait, sorry, wait, but, let me finish just this to make one point. Here, just let me finish this one point, that if the masks work, why didn't we put them into the jails instead of turning pr- felons loose turning prisoners loose with felony convictions and putting them back into society to keep them safe. If they work, they had social distance. They're in different cells. We can put them in different cells, but we didn't give masks. If they work, why didn't we do that instead of putting felons back into the system? So there are questions that I think legitimately present themselves from the actions that we see both nationally and in the state. Well, I think you're talking about a very small number of people who've who've been released and under state law that allows for them to be released in certain situations. You've seen what happens in Otero County um, with that facility where there was a massive outbreak. Um, I, I just I'm not quite sure the science has been evolving. You referenced Dr. Fauci first saying one thing and then saying another. That's because this is a novel and new virus and more people are, are studying it. Doesn't it make sense to follow that science as it evolves? Yeah, I'm happy following the science, but make sure the science is right. And viruses are not new. Viruses have been with us since humanity. And so the idea that suddenly we this have a novel situation, virus, chairman. that viruses act very similarly. Uh, viruses act very similarly. This is a form of flu, swine flu, bird flu. This is a form of that flu. And yes, it may act a little bit differently, but viruses are very, very predictable. All right. Well, Chairman, we, we appreciate your time. Always there are, there are more questions than we have time to get answers to, but I, I appreciate you uh, working always, with us and, and finding a time that works. Always happy to do it. Uh, come back on and let's, uh, let's talk more. These are the conversations that I think that New Mexico should be having. One of the other criticisms you hear often about COVID-19 is it's a complicated one, but it has to do with herd immunity, which is a phrase I'm sure you've heard comes into play with any sort of virus. And it's basically what happens when enough people asymptomatic or recovered, they build immunity to that virus and it makes it harder for it to spread quickly. And so there are a lot of people um, that feel that maybe that's something we need to uh, take part in and understand and embrace as we try to return to some sort of normalcy in a COVID-19 world. Well, we wanted to find out a little more about what that actually would mean here in New Mexico, how many people would have to have it for herd immunity to kick in, uh, what the risks and rewards of that kind of approach are in New Mexico. We were lucky enough to sit down with Dr. Stephen Bradfute from UNM in the Internal Medicine Department to get the lowdown on what exactly herd immunity is, 
what level of infection you would need in the state to get to that point, and again, what the risks and potential rewards are of taking that sort of mentality to our approach on COVID-19. We did a little more uh, with Dr. Bradfute on line that we encourage you to check out, especially when he talks about how you can sort of weed through all the information that's out there to find the best science and the best information about things like herd immunity and other medical and science research on COVID-19. So I encourage you to go there as well. Here now is correspondent Megan Kamrick and Dr. Bradfute. With the end of the COVID-19 pandemic nowhere in sight, some are thinking that it would be best for the country to counter the virus through an idea called herd immunity. The catch? A medical expert we talked to says it's likely more fatalities and overwhelming hospitals with cases. Correspondent Megan Kamrick sat down with Dr. Stephen Bradfute to talk about the different arguments on herd immunity, as well as the potential long-term effects the virus could have on those who survive it, even without hospitalization. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Bradfute. Could you explain what herd immunity is and what does it mean in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic? What doesn't it mean? Right, so herd immunity is basically the um, uh, what occurs when a significant amount of people have immunity against a pathogen. And that uh, when you reach herd immunity, it really limits the ability of the pathogen, in this case, coronavirus, to spread from person to person. So if you have 50 people in a room and 30 of them have immunity against the virus, it's harder for the virus to jump because it has to jump through people that are immune to it and they won't be able to pass it on. Do we know yet if we actually have the potential for herd immunity with COVID-19? It's a great question, and it's an open question. Most people think that herd immunity for coronavirus that causes COVID-19 is about 40 to 60% of the population is immune to the virus. Um, Some people have said they think maybe even 25% might be enough. Um, Nobody really knows for sure, and it kind of depends on how fast this virus spreads, which is fairly well known, but there's still some questions about it. So we're, some areas may be approaching that if they're very hard hit, but overall as a country, it's doubtful that we've uh, approached that threshold yet. You hear people saying sometimes it's, you know, there's a lot of economic consequences to shutting down um, the economy for people's health and people in frustration say, just keep it all open. We'll all get herd immunity. Can you address why that might be a mistaken idea of how herd immunity works. Right. Well, so it's a lot of it is based on your perspective. It's, it's easy to say that when you haven't seen patients dying in the hospital. On the other hand, it's easy to say, stay at home when you have a job, when you have something you've worked all your life and you've lost it and you'll never get it back. And you have someone that's making good money and their job is perfectly stable they're not gonna understand where you're coming from. The flip side, if you're not working around patients that are very sick and dying of the disease, it's hard to have that perspective as well, that this is really a big thing. So I think people have to, and I know it's not the easiest time in our lives to do this, but I think people have to understand and respect other people's sides and put yourself in their shoes. It's old advice, but it's really good advice because I think often the answer is somewhere in the middle. Um, The whole goal of, limiting and flattening the curve, limiting the spread is because if everybody gets infected very rapidly, 
our healthcare system is going to have a hard time dealing with that. And a lot more people would die in a short amount of time. Flattening the curve, it doesn't make, mean that fewer people are going to be infected. It means that, that the amount of people infected will spread out over time so our healthcare facilities can handle that. The downside of that is it might lead to the virus being around a little longer so that it can kind of come back, but it doesn't overwhelm our healthcare system either. So I think both, I mean, I understand both sides because uh, uh, I've seen both sides. Um, but the, the idea for the, you know, the herd immunity is that you're gonna have to have a lot of people get infected and we don't know how well people are going to have immunity after that. And a lot of people will have to get infected for herd immunity to work. Um, and there are some consequences to that. And a lot of people are going to get really, really sick. And a lot of people are going to die because it's, it would overwhelm our healthcare facilities. Forgive me, you might have answered this, but how many people would need to be infected before herd immunity kicks in? Or does that vary with the illness? Yeah, it varies with the illness. The best guess is 40 to 60 percent for this virus. For something like measles, which is spread like wildfire, you need as high as 95 percent of the population. Um, but the, most people are guessing between 40 and 60 percent, either with infection and that leads to immunity or with a vaccine that would provide um, immunity. Some of those who buy into the idea of herd immunity think they're fine not wearing a mask because the majority of others are. Could you address that? Yeah, so <laughs> masks are, you know, not all masks are created equal. Um, there's three main types. There's the N95 mask, which is made to work extremely well at blocking transmission of uh, any airborne or droplet pathogen um, and blocking it from uh, coming to you. Um, but those are largely used by uh, healthcare workers um, because there was a shortage for a while. And so people were asked not to wear them so that healthcare providers could have them protect themselves. Then there's the surgical mask that you see um, that um, uh, surgeons often will use. Um, and they're kind of made to block people that are infected and don't know it or infected and do know it from spreading it to others. And so they work pretty well for that. How well they work at stopping you from getting infected from somebody else, I think is still up in the air. Um, and then the cloth masks, which um, historically have not been uh, recommended for use, um, but now they are, and there's studies ongoing about whether or not, uh, how much, you know, what, how protective this is. But the general idea is the more precautions you take, the better off you are. So if one person's wearing a mask and one isn't, that's better than neither person wearing a mask. But if they're both wearing a mask, you know, that's something that people can do to try to reduce the spread. Um, I think there's been some confusion and understandably so about mask wearing because originally people were told not to wear masks and now people are told to wear masks. And um, I think the bottom line is that doesn't, uh, it, it does provide some protection um, and uh, everything that we can do, I think uh, to stop the spread is, is uh, something that we should be doing. Um, in New Mexico, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham told the Washington Post this week, there, the estimates are that maybe 55, 50 to 55% and that's well short of the 80% she called important are wearing masks. Um, so why is that a key figure? Well, I think it's, it's just another, um, and I, you know, I haven't seen the data behind that, but it's just uh, basically there comes a point where if it's kind of like herd immunity, if you reach a threshold where enough limitation of the spread is going on, 
then the virus stops infecting as many people. So there's what's called like, you know, so if you get a, 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 a like an R naught is the number that's thrown around of two, that means for every person that's infected, it gives, the, they infect two other people. So by uh, social dis- distancing or having herd immunity or wearing masks, if you can drop that number from le- to, to less than one, that means for every person that gets infected, they will on average infect less than one person and then the virus spread goes down. So I think that's the reasoning behind those numbers. And across the country, there many of the new cases, roughly 45% here in New Mexico are people aged 20 to 39. COVID is less likely to be fatal for them, but what are we learning about those who contracted and survive? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, there is um, some literature coming out. Unfortunately, a lot of it's liter- uh, publication by the press and that means that someone finds something and it gets published in the press, but it doesn't undergo scientific peer review. So I'm a little more cautious about answering some of these questions until it's gone through the standard scientific process. Um, but uh, having looked through the literature um, that's available and uh, analyzing different studies that are out there, there is a significant proportion of people that get COVID-19 that have long-term effects that can last um, months. Um, And of course, we're not that far into it, so we don't know how long it can be. Um, Some people um, have complained of having still, you know, shortness of breath, difficulty exercising, um, even after they've cleared infection. Um, Some people have reported having neurological symptoms, kind of a brain fog or, um, you know, difficulty doing some tasks they normally didn't have difficulty doing. Um, There is, uh, people sometimes will get blood clots, Uh, when they have infection and they're in the hospital um, and that can lead to uh, tissue damage uh, that can be uh, kind of residual. There's uh, a couple of groups that are working, uh, several groups that are starting to track patients long-term and seeing what those effects are. Um, There's actually an app that some people can sign up for and daily report their symptoms. Um, How am I feeling? How long has it been after infection? So that people- Yes, I do one of those for Stanford. (laughs) Yep, exactly. And it's a great way of, of looking at it. Right now, it's not clear if, um, you know, there's obviously you're worried about people that have been in the ICU. Um, There's also psychological things that can happen. I mean, just being in the ICU or being ventilated normally can lead to issues um, because of, you know, just the trauma of it all. But also, you know, these days, you know, you can't have a lot of visitors, right? You don't see uh, everyone that comes in to see you is, you know, completely gowned up and messed up. And so there's some, some effects of that as well. Uh, the percentage of people that have these long-term symptoms, it's still unknown. I've seen estimates as low as 10% of everyone that gets infected, uh, you know, maybe over half that go into the hospital have some effects that last longer than a month, but it's really a, an open question at this point, but there uh, are some concerns about longer term uh, symptoms, even after clearing the initial infection. Uh, if younger people aren't as serious about COVID-19 transmission, what's the implication for the rest of the community? Well, I mean, it's, it's, the whole goal is to try to keep the virus away from those that are most at risk. And that tends to be people with underlying conditions and the elderly. Um, but it can uh, cause disease in people that are uh, a severe disease and people that are otherwise, you know, they're healthy. Um, and so uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things where uh, you try to take as many precautions as you can and, uh, uh, and go from there. Um, some people are uh, we're going to have underlying conditions will be fine. Some people that don't have underlying conditions will have severe disease. Um, 
but overall it tends to be the elderly and those with underlying conditions. And so the good concern is you don't want to pat, even if you're healthy, you don't want to get it and pass it on to somebody else. And you can probably pass on the disease even before you have symptoms in some cases, or even if you don't have any symptoms throughout the course, you might unknowingly pass it on to someone else. So that's the concern. Well, Dr. Bradfeet, thank you so much for speaking with us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. The rest of this show will be non-COVID-19 related. Lots of other things going on in the news this week. One of the big things that especially sports fans will be aware of is after years and years and even decades of criticism of the Washington, D.C. NFL football team and their mascot and how uh, especially Native American communities feel like it is degrading to their culture and uh, and, and it's just really an inhuman approach to take to mascots. They announced this week that they were going to leave that moniker behind, find a new mascot, a new logo, a new name for the team. We don't know what that new name and mascot is yet, but this was celebrated by a lot of folks who have been fighting this for this change for a long time, and it will likely be just the beginning of some of these changes. There are other NFL teams in Kansas City, in other sports as well, who have mascots and names that draw on Native American culture, especially a warrior culture. For a lot of years, the argument was that these were actually embracing and celebrating these cultures, but obviously that is not how a lot of folks feel about it. And uh, a lot of this has resurfaced in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, and that's really being credited with this latest change with the Washington, D.C. football team. Uh, correspondent Antonio Gonzalez pulls together a terrific group of folks here to talk about why this is important, what the message is, and just why this was so hurtful to the Native American communities. We've got journalists, sports reporters, advocates uh, from all over the country here to talk to her about that. So let's have her take it away. After decades of fighting the Washington, D.C. football team to end its use of a racial slur for its mascot, Native American advocates celebrated this week as the Washington NFL team announced the retirement of the name and logo following calls from financial backers. The Black Lives Matter movement is credited for raising awareness of Indian mascots amid racial justice rallies across the country that followed the police killing of George Floyd, individual Native Americans, national Native American organizations, and hundreds of Native American tribes across the country, including right here in New Mexico, have long called for the end of offensive and racist mascots. This week, Native writers and advocates tell correspondent Antonia Gonzalez that work on the issue is not over. Suzanne Harjos, Sunny Clotis Chiligi, and Rhonda Lavaldo, thank you so much for joining us this week on New Mexico in Focus. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. And uh, Suzanne, you're in the DC area and you've been involved in change the name efforts for decades, including as lead plaintiff over the team name. Right now we're seeing a lot of focus on racial justice in the United States, but when it comes to native mascots and logos, team names, there's still this misunderstanding and we even see words all the way up to the White House. Explain to us why this is harmful. It's harmful because it interferes with our peoples and our people being able to assert our own personalities, our own identities, have our own reputations, 
show our own attributes, show our own humanity. It's overlaying a false persona on us as people or peoples. And this is exactly the kind of thing we were trying to get at in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People when we said it's the Indigenous peoples who have the right to assert our own identity. It can't be laid on us from the outside. And that's what this does, besides the mockery and the slurs and the insults and all of those things, and the, the um, outright uh, mockery of our traditions, our clothing, our appearance, our features, our, our things we hold sacred. It is fundamentally interfering with our, the way we, we want to relate to the world. It's putting a false wall up there and making fun of us and doing the equivalent of spitting in our faces at the same time. And it doesn't mean the work's not over, Suzanne, is that right? Um, you say there's, what, 900 or so um, team names that advocates like yourself are calling to end the use of the name and mascots, including in professional sports, but also in schools. So what was your take when you heard the news this week about the Washington DC football team? Whoopee, I mean, we know that they have lied many, many times in the past and we've been here before, but it looks like they mean it this time. And you know, you always have to have hope that someone, uh, even if they have a history as a liar, that this time they're telling the truth. So I hope this is the truth. That was my immediate reaction. And uh, if so, whoopee. And then what a lot of work we have ahead of us. But it's going to be easier because the worst one has fallen. And that's king of the trash heap has fallen in the nation's capital. And that it sends a huge signal across American sports. And I think there will be a couple of hundred in the first year uh, of these schools and, and reluctance uh, in, in so far from the 1960s to today. Uh, they just haven't wanted to change. I think they're going to change. They're going to see that time's up. And Rhonda, you're an instructor at a tribal college. Uh, you're also a native journalist, and you also live in Kansas, a city with a professional football team. Uh, Suzanne was talking about the mockery. Explain some of that, what it's like where you're at. Well, here in um, Lawrence in the Kansas City area, um, because of uh, we're home to Kansas City football and they were Super Bowl champions, this, this immense uh, amount of using the Arrowhead Chop song. And you wouldn't just hear it during the games. You'd heard it during commercials, uh, on the radio, um, in a grocery store, walking down the aisle. It was everywhere. And even billboards. I, I talked about a billboard I had passed and it was McDonald's that said, you know, you can feed the whole tribe. So it was just constantly in your face um, hearing that uh, chant and we would hope now that they would get on board and addressing the situation because you know putting out tone deaf statements saying they stand with black lives matter and 
you know, you stand with Black Lives Matter, you should stand um, against all racial injustices against people of color. And after you heard the announcement this week, Rhonda, what were some of the responses from Native people in Kansas when it comes to the football team there? They were very excited. I, I know a lot of uh, my friends here locally were saying it's time uh, for the Chiefs to, to do the same. And Sunny, you're here in Albuquerque, a student at UNM, but also, or a doctoral student, I should say, at UNM, but also you're a longtime sports writer, one of few uh, Native women sports writers that I know of. Uh, you've seen a lot of racism in schools during the years of your reporting. How does that connect with the way that Native people are seeing in, in mascots and logos? Um, I think that um, in my initial reaction of the news with the Washington team, I was immediately thinking about all of the teams on the Navajo reservation who have mascots and logos that are chiefs or warriors or, you know, things along those lines. And the, the first one I thought about just right out of the gate was the um, Red Mesa team in Arizona, because I know that we've written stories at the Navajo Times of how the Washington pro team has actually held camps there um, in tr trying to create some kind of camaraderie to, to have people say that it's okay and that Nav Native people uh, feel honored to have this, to have this representation. And so, so I, my immediate concern was, you know, what's going to happen with those teams in, in various, not just the Navajo Nation, but the tribes in New Mexico, some tribes and pueblos in New Mexico that might have, you know, mascots that they feel honor them. And so, um, so it's a, it's an interesting time. Unfortunately, I'm not full-time sports writer anymore, so I'm going to miss out on some of that, but it's interesting. It's interesting to see things unfold. And you have seen um, in past reporting some of the racism, especially with uh, non-reservation schools when uh, reservation schools are playing different sports teams and how that correlates to the way Native students see themselves and also just how the non-Native schools see um, the students there. What are some of the experiences from your past reporting, Sunny, that you, that you can share? I think that one of the, the more prominent prominent instances that stands out for me is a tournament held in the local border town, Farmington, where there are some Navajo teams that participate in that in December, usually. Um, the, the, the Navajo team was doing so well, and they were having a comeback in that tournament, and they weren't expected to do so well. And there were some um, white kids in the back or standing, sitting behind me where the press table is, who were, were getting so upset that their team was losing. And they were saying to the players on the court, you're just a drunken Indian. You're just going to be a drunk like the rest of your family and, you know, things like that. And so it's definitely there. And I, I can't remember a time where it hasn't happened every season in one sport or another. So there's a lot of slurs that, um, you know, are kind of brought up with sports and especially in the heat of the moment with competition. And Suzanne, hearing some of what Sunny says, that connection, there's been studies with um, looking at Native youth and self-esteem and also the impacts on Native youth. What's your response to the public when they say these mascots are honoring Native American tribes, Native American people? Well, anything that dehumanizes or objectifies actual people uh, is not good. A mascot by definition is not a person. A, it's a token. It's uh, it's something that is not. It's an inanimate um, object. It's not. 
it's a name, it's a behavior, it's a tomahawk chop. It's not a person, a living person. Uh, the federal government began these names when it started uh, the, the program of detribalizing native peoples, uh, children at the federal Indian boarding schools. And all of them were named kind of group uh, names, the Indians and the chiefs and the warriors. And it was uh, at the same time that they were trying to kill off any allegiance to, uh, to Cheyenne or Sioux or Navajo um, or Akama. They, they were trying to pan-Indianize everyone, trying to get people to dislike each other because of their tribes, because of their nations because of their different cultures and try to get them to think in a pan-Indian way of, of flattening so that you're not valuing your teachings, you're not valuing your parents, you're not valuing the land. You are valuing an imitation of yourself, a token of yourself, a representation that has nothing to do with you personally. So all these schools on reservations they're living the legacy that everyone has worked so hard to get rid of, that legacy of torture and assimilation in the federal Indian boarding schools. And they're carrying it out today. Even if you have a team and you say, we're the warriors and we're the Apache warriors, then they play another team whose job it is to hate you. Their fans hate you. You're always mocked, and it never fails, uh, as with the White Mountain Apache team one year. The people on the other side started yelling at them, why, why don't you go back where you came from? That's always a favorite. And uh, why don't you pay taxes? And what does that have to do with any game? All the racist stereotypes, historic stereotypes, come flooding out when the people are in the heat of the moment attacking your beloved image, your mascot. I say get rid of them all because they all do harm and damage. They all cause low self-esteem and low self-esteem is the leading cause of teenage suicide. And our teenage suicide rate has been higher than any other segment of American society uh, for I think about a century. So we have to look at this as a life and death matter because it truly is for many of our young people. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us today and talking about this and this breaking news that happened this week. And we'll look to see what happens in Kansas City and schools across the country, both on and off the reservation. Thank you all for joining us this week. Uh -huh. Thank you. Back now to the line panel. This week it was announced that new charges were being filed or refiled against Stephen Baca. You may, may remember him from the protests from about a month ago uh, in front of the Albuquerque Museum when protesters um, tried to pull down a statue of the conquistador, Spanish conquistador Don Juan de Oñate. Uh, the uh, militia group Mexico Civil Guard was there with armed folks Stephen Baca was also there, was also armed, 
by all accounts and by lots of video that's been out there, Mr. Baca was um, was being really aggressive with these protesters. I'm sure in his mind, and it's been said that he was trying to protect the statue and this damage. But uh, there is video of him potentially pepper spraying people in the crowd, uh, yanking and pulling a woman to the ground where she hit her head. All of this escalated into some folks coming after Mr. Baca, swinging a skateboard, saying some threatening things, and him pulling his gun out and shooting a man in the back. That man was Scott Williams, uh, who was recovering today. And the um, charges against Mr. Baca were originally pulled by D.A. Raul Torres because of uh, some lack of evidence, but their investigation has continued and D.A. Torres feels like there is enough there to charge him again. Wanted to get the line's thoughts on this. And great to have Laura Sanchez with us this week because uh, as an attorney, she's got some really terrific insight on the legal implications of this fight in terms of First Amendment, Second Amendment issues. And also one of the things that D.A. Torres did that you'll hear her talk about is file a separate civil lawsuit against that militia group, the New Mexico Civil Guard. So Lots of things to get to delve into here, and want to turn it over to Gene Grant and the line. Stephen Baca, the accused shooter from the protest at the Oñate statue last month, once again faces a charge for shooting protester Scott Williams. Critically, in, he was critically injured there. That charge was dropped following what, frankly, was a sloppy police report filed by Albuquerque APD. They didn't collect evidence or interview witnesses that night, according to multiple accounts. First, Laura, does the DA's move make sense? And does the charge after a a more thorough investigation improve his case? Um, Well, I think that uh, certainly it improves his case. If he dropped the charge to begin with because they didn't have enough uh, evidence, there hadn't been enough information collected. I mean, you don't want to move forward with a case unless you have adequate evidence to sustain the charge. That makes it very easy for a defense attorney to get this uh, to get it kicked out. Um, so it, it made sense for him to withdraw at the time to drop the charge. Um, but it, there's no guarantee when they drop charges like that um, that they aren't going to refile when they have enough evidence. That's pretty common. I don't think there's anything unusual about that. What is unusual, of course, is that you have so much. Um, uh, this is so publicly known, the incident, and so it's, it's become very charged politically, and so people are, are watching and interpreting things based on what the DA is doing. So um, that being said, though, it sounds like the, the DA this week both refiled charges against, um, against Mr. Baca, but also uh, did something very interesting, which is filed a civil suit against the New Mexico Civil Guard, and that's a separate lawsuit in civil court that he has filed with the assistance of of some private attorneys, which I also find uh, very interesting, uh, basically requesting that the court um, grant an injunction against the New Mexico Civil Civil Guard, this um, so-called militia, uh, to restrain them from attending these protests. And uh, under the, basically the allegation is that they're intimidating the protesters, they're infringing on their their, uh, First Amendment rights, um, free speech and right to assemble. But what's interesting is that I think the defense that the same group will use will also be along the lines of First Amendment rights and their ability to attend um, any protest they, they want and to be able to um, assemble also. So I think we're going to see some very interesting um, constitutional issues that come out of that lawsuit. I'm, fa- I'm fascinated by what you're saying. That is interesting, isn't it? And I want to come back to you on the help that he's getting as well. It's a fascinating little little deal there. 
Uh, Tom Garrity, um, Mr. Baca's lead attorney, Jason Bowles, says it's clearly self-defense after, as we saw in the video, the protesters swinging that skateboard at Mr. Baca, and at least one person was heard shouting, you know, we're going to kill you. Um, the self-defense thing. What's your initial take on that? Again, we're just playing lawyers on TV here. I'm not ex <laughs> expecting you to have it all down cold, but first blush, self-defense? Uh, I think in, in in a court of law, as far as if you get a jury trial, you know, you just need to be able to convince one uh, that it, uh, you know, to, to the point. And Jason Bowles is uh, as, as good as they come. And he's very persuasive. He's very good at what he does. And I'm sure that uh, while he would prefer that these charges not be refiled against his client, um, I'm sure he is ready to go and uh, has his case uh, all prepared. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's... Uh, you know, depends on what part of the narrative you look at uh, that would determine whether it was self-defense or not. Sure. Um, you know, if you look at the final, you know, 10, 15 seconds, uh, perhaps, if you look at the entirety of the video, uh, that'll be up for uh, a jury of his peers. That's right. Inez, our district attorney, Paul Tor Raul Torres, says if Mr. Baca initiated the conflict, meaning he threw a protester to the ground, and we've seen that on the video over and over, using what appeared to be pepper spray on another person. The DA says those things mean self-defense is out the window. Does he have a, a, a good, a, a clear, you know, understanding of this? Not him as a, as a DA, but as he's expressing it to us. Can you see that, what he's saying to us? What I think he's doing, and we'll see if it works on a jury, is he's saying that bullies don't get to cry at the end and say, oh, they hit me. Because Mr. Baca went to the protest armed. So that's in itself a violent action or an aggressive action. He started interacting with people, which he did not have to do. And no one appointed him defender of the Oñate statue. So he could have let, you know, regular police, the museum officials, whomever, take care of it. You don't get to appoint yourself sheriff of the world and go start beating people up who you disagree with, which is what we saw him do on video when he threw the woman to the ground and pepper sprayed whatever. Mm -hmm. That someone then threw a skateboard at him, you could argue they were a citizen's militia trying to arrest a miscreant, you know? Yeah. And then he shot in self-defense, supposedly. I think that as a society, we have to say people can protest without being intimidated by other people with guns. That yes, there is a second amendment, but there's also a first amendment. And what I really like about the civil lawsuit, however it plays out, is that Raul Torres is making a stand to say it is not normal to show up at protests heavily armed like you're going to war. Right. And right. we have to stop that as a society. And if a civil lawsuit isn't the way, I hope the legislature looks at ways to regulate militias. In Wyoming, they outlaw militias completely. Right. So other states have, have taken this on. And I, I think it's okay as a citizen to say, I wanna walk the streets and not see 10 guys with guns who are protecting me that I didn't ask to protect me. That's right. So, Laura Sanchez, I wanna come back to you on this. You started us off on this, uh, the ad hoc militia group there. You know, interestingly, when I when I think about uh, what you mentioned, the work that is being done with the outside group uh, from back east, and th this group helped the Charlottesville situation. They got a conviction from for that man that drove that car and killed that woman, regrettably, in that Charlottesville protest. This could be very interesting. I, I, I got a funny feeling if 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 he 
does what he thinks he's going to do here. This could be of some note across the country about how to deal with these types of people. It could be. Um, it, it's a really interesting, again, if you're at all a student of, of constitutional law issues, this is a very interesting case that will uh, develop potentially if it continues to go through um, the court system. And uh, the group is called um, the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy. And it was created out of, uh, it, it's housed at Georgetown Law. Um, and so we're talking about people who are very well versed in constitutional law issues. Um, Georgetown in general has a very strong reputation for constitutional law scholarship. And so um, you're really seeing people that are at the top of their game when it comes to these issues. And the fact that they've already had a success in prohibiting a similar group from attending protests in the Charlottesville um, uh, example uh, bodes very well in terms of them being very influential and helpful in this case. Um, also though, there's in addition to that group, there's a local law firm, a private law firm um, that is also assisting and has entered an appearance to assist, associate as counsel it's called, um, with the DA's office. So they're really gonna have a sort of a trifecta of a dream team working on this issues um, that includes uh, assistance from those two entities, uh, private law firm, the, this Constitutional Protection Institute, or Institute for Constitutional Protection, and, um, and uh, the DA's office. So right. I think we're gonna see a lot there. But on the other side, um, you know, all of the militia members themselves, in, in, in addition to the group as an entity, are being, um, on my understanding, will be represented by uh, Paul Kennedy, yes. who was also at one point um, appointed as a justice of the Supreme Court here in New Mexico by Martinez um, for a short time until um, it was filled by a Democrat in an election. But nevertheless, he's very much at the forefront also of his game. He's, done, he's got a lot of experience, um, very influential as well, takes a lot of high profile um, clients on. And uh, so we're going to really see some heavy hitters um, in this case. And I think it's one that we're going to keep talking about on the show. I have not a doubt you're right. I, I love the way you just sort of summarize that whole situation. My sense of it is something bubbling here. That's very interesting. Tom, back to you. What's the takeaway from you about APD? And we've had some time to look back on the Onyate situation. I mean, I, I remember seeing on Facebook a little bit ago, all they had to do was put a cruiser about 30 feet away from that statue and none of this would have ever happened, you know, which is easy yeah. to say post, post, but what's your sense of it for APD? Yeah, it's always the coulda, woulda, shoulda. Um, right. You know, I think we all look at, from that perspective, we always can, I think, say, well, here's what needed to happen. But I think before, you know, really turning too much of a fine tune on APD, you really need to be able to look at who was directing the APD uh, with respect to, you know, did, were um, they directed to let people just go in and tear the statues down? And if that's the case, um, you know, then they did what they were supposed to do. I think also, as we had talked about before, that there was a big issue with respect to, you know, an armed uh, group of people there. Uh, you know, this was a new uh, first time ever uh, event in New Mexico where you had, uh, you know, an armed militia uh, basically protecting a statue that, uh, you know, people were trying to tear down or right. trying to deface. And uh, so, you know, you had that whole variable, which I think is a justifiable variable to, uh, you know, not necessarily go in. Of course, when APD did go in, uh, you know, the protesters were, you know, uh, immediately put their weapons down. Uh, they surrendered. Uh, you know, perhaps that could have happened earlier. I think history is on that side. Gotcha. After wrapping up there, thanks to all of you for weighing in with your opinions and stay healthy. That's the first thing. All right. We'll leave you this week with Gene Grant and his usual final thoughts, including the latest on the growing trend towards 
potentially a federal mask mandate. Um, and so he's been talking about this for a lot. Also, he's going to be talking about our newest project, a website called New Mexico Groundwater War, which is a project we are working on with Frontline that's all about PFAS contamination in and around New Mexico military installations. These PFAS contaminants are part of firefighting foams that were used at these installations for years. They are super complicated and also super threatening because they don't break down. You can't just dilute them with water. So cleanup is a real issue. And here in New Mexico, anyway, the Department of Defense is actually embroiled in several lawsuits with the state uh, to try to get out of having to clean up or address these issues. It's something we've been following or going to continue to follow. And now it's all in one great place for you on the website. There's great information there along with our reporting timelines, frequently asked questions about the project. We encourage you to check it out. Easiest way to get there, go to NewMexicoInFocus.org, and you'll find a link to it there. All right, we want to thank you all for listening and for paying attention and for being so informed and engaged about our community. Here are some those final thoughts from Jim Grant, and we'll see you next week. 2020 hasn't seen a lot of highlights, but one of ours here at NMPBS is a grant from the investigative team at Frontline. Laura Paskus and our team are digging into a project we're calling Groundwater War, about toxic pollutants in the water below New Mexico military installations. We launched the Groundwater War website this week. You can find a link on our New Mexico in Focus homepage. If you're a regular watcher of the line, and I hope you are, you know I've used these past few weeks in this segment of the show to talk about the importance of masks. There are now a sizable number of states with mandated mask orders, including here in New Mexico, but regrettably not our neighbors to the immediate east and west. Is this all leading to a national mask mandate order? Well, 26 states now have a mask mandate. 13 major retailers, including Walmart and Smith's, now require masks for customers starting on Monday. Factor in the many cities and counties now requiring masks, and I think it's looking more and more likely. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.